Well, before we get started today, I'm going to need a volunteer. Now, I promise I won't embarrass you, but I do need uh, someone to come up and help me out, volunteer for just a moment to uh, start the, the process by which we'll learn about Ahab today. So anybody want to be brave enough to help me out? I'm just going to do a magic trick. You just got to tell me which hand stuff's in. Hey, come on up. Can we give her a hand? Hey, come on up. And what's your name? Veronica. Veronica. Veronica, come on over here. You're going to stand right here. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold on to this Kleenex, and I'm going to just put it in my hand, okay? Put it in one hand, make it disappear, and come back again like that. All right, but what you're going to do is you're going to stand here facing me. I'm going to come down to your level so you can see it. Now, nobody's allowed to help, but you're going to try and guess which hand's it in. Okay, no. Okay, watch a little closer. Okay, get a little closer to me. Come a little closer. I want to make sure you can see it really well, okay? So, ready? All right, which hand's it in now? No. Let's try again. How about now? Okay, take a step toward me, because I want to make sure you can see it. Let's make it a little bit bigger this time. This will, this will be helpful. Okay, go ahead and face me again. Now, nobody helping her. All right, now this time we got two. You ought to be able to see that, right? All right, so we got this big one right here. Ready? And which hand's it in? Oh, close. It was in this one here this time, all right? Which hand's it in now? Now, do you have any idea? Now, I don't have any sleeves, right? Do you have any idea where the Kleenex is? We'll do one more. All right, here. All right. Now, that you ought to be able to see, right? Okay, get real close, because I want to make sure you can see this thing. All right. All right? Get even closer. Get even closer. All right, ready? All right? All right, where's it at now? Do you have any idea where the Kleenex is? No, do you? Turn around and look behind you. Can we give her a hand? Hey, great job. You know, often we are blind to the things right in front of us, and yet other people around us can see it. And whether it's a weakness in our leadership, whether it's a critical attitude in our character, often we get so close to a situation that we can't see what everyone around us sees. And we're going to find that today with Ahab. We're going to see this tendency that we all have to be blind to our own limitations. And the way this particular trick works is the closer you get to me, the more your peripheral view shrinks. And so as long as I flip my backhand over your peripheral view, you cannot see it. And you're going to see that with uh, Ahab today. This principle is that we are blind to our own limitations. We just don't see it, even though everyone around us can. But we falsely find limitations for God. So we're going to back up into the passage we looked at last week, sort of summarize from a new perspective some of the limitations we have on God, then we're going to dive into some of the limitations that we don't see and that we're blind to of ourselves. So let's begin. We're in uh, 1 Kings chapter 20. We're going to try and realize our expectations in God's with hopes of two things. One, that when you begin to see how big God is, that he is not limited, you have a sense of fearlessness that he can be with you. And when you begin to understand the truth about yourself, you develop self-awareness, which helps you be a better father, better mother, better spouse, better leader, better follower, because you're more in connection to the truth. And only the truth can set you free. So let's begin here in the first part of the verse. First thing we see is that God is not limited by karma. If you remember where we left off last week, God has decided to work with Ahab. Now, Ahab was one of the most wicked kings of all time in Israel's history. And yet God chooses, instead of giving him what he deserves, giving him judgment, which would have been totally fair by God, he instead 
gives him grace. He comes to Ahab and says, Ahab, even though you've been evil, even though you've been rebellious, I want to deliver my people from the Syrians through you so that everyone can know that I'm the Lord. Here's how he says it. So go. The prophet comes to Ahab and says, strengthen yourself. Take note. See what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Syria is going to come up against you. So God just provided him with one victory and said, be prepared. I'm going to provide you for another. What's amazing about this is that God is not limited by karma. Many Christians I know think through the lens of suffering through karma. God is mad at me. God's out to get me. And even though they call themselves Christians, they think like Hindus when it comes to the problem of evil or suffering. And yet here's just one of many examples where God, instead of making somebody reap what they sow, which can happen, God works outside of that cycle to say, I want to give grace, giving you what you don't deserve, or mercy, the opposite of what you deserve. In fact, I love how Bono says it when reflecting upon the message of the Bible. He says, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics and physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace. To upend all that as you reap, so you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. It interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is a very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. In fact, I changed the word stuff. That wasn't the word he used. (laughs) The main message of the Bible is that God works with people like Ahab, traitors, rebellious, people who go their own way. One of the reasons that we love, pursue our neighbors who have different beliefs than us, we love them, we care for them, is because we know we were once an Ahab that God was gracious to. So God is not limited by karma. The second thing we learn from the passage is that God is not limited by location. A little summary of last week. The servants of the king of Syria said, hey, I know why we lost the battle last time. They've got a God who handles the hills, but their God doesn't handle the plains. So let's battle them in the plains and then we'll be stronger than they are. And as silly as that idea seems, that God only wins battles in the hills and not the plains, I think many of us have the same limitation on God. We think that God, he can be with us in that kind of situation. For whatever reason, we're going through a valley time in our life. And we just wonder if God can really answer prayers here. We wonder if he's still accessible during this time in our life. We wonder if in this particular moment, if God has left the building, we wonder if our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. We actually in our mind have some sense that God is limited. He can't operate in this area of my life for whatever reason. And so we begin to distance ourselves or pull away from him. And the God of the Bible reminds us he is not limited by location. He is just available to you and where you are now. Whatever season, whether you're in a mountain or a valley, he says, I will be with you. God's also not limited by opposition. As we learned last week. The Israeli armies looks like a little bitty flock of goats amongst a hillside, it says, of Syrians that are filling the countryside. And the man of God spoke and said to them, even though you're outnumbered, even though you're outgunned, even though all the forces are against you, know this, thus says the Lord. Because the Syrians have said, God says, that the Lord is the Lord of the hills, but not the God of the valleys, I'm going to deliver this great multitude into your hand. And here's that point that you will know that I am the Lord. 
Whatever the opposition you're up against, circumstances, medical issues, financial issues, family challenges, God wants to work in the midst of that to let you know that he is the Lord, that he is available, that he is your strength, that he can be just as real to you in this circumstance as he was when things were going well or when you were in a different circumstance. God is not limited by opposition. We also find that God is not limited by our efforts. So they they go to battle. They encamped opposite each other. And as I mentioned last week, this is a reenactment of Jericho. So they come to battle, and they're, they're waiting for seven days, if you remember Jericho. It's on the seventh day, the battle was joined. The children of Israel killed. Look how many they killed. 100,000 foot soldiers get killed by this little flock of goats. And they did it in one day. But the rest escaped. <clears throat> and I love this idea that when you do your part, God takes care of the other part. Because look what happens. Though they were able to kill off 100,000 foot soldiers... 27,000 escape, and they, they fled to Aphok into the city, and a wall falls on top of them. Again, this is God reenacting Jericho. Just as I worked with your ancestors, so I will work with punishing the evildoers. Which made me think, how, how big does the wall have to be to kill 27,000 people? I think when, when a skeptic or an unconvinced person looks at something like this, you say, well, I'm not sure that's real plausible. But, of course, we know this is God's words. We know it must be true. So I was wondering just how that could happen. So I was talking to a friend of mine. He was an architect, a partner in a firm down in Orlando. And he was discussing how load-bearing walls work. If we go back to the time of the judges, they've actually uncovered some Philistine temples. Here's one uh, illustrated on your left, where the entire roof line was actually held by two pillars. In fact, they've uncovered some of these. Here's one. Two different pillars which are actually holding up the entire weight of the ceiling. So what could happen here is one load-bearing wall falls, and the net result is the entire structure collapses. They found some other pieces where that same structure was used, but it was a three-story building. All of a sudden, one load-bearing wall on the first floor, and multiple levels begin to crash in. So we're not sure how God did it, but it is plausible that it could be done. Here's some ways it could be done. In fact, even in history today, we can see how one load-bearing wall can impact many, many lives and tragedies. Here's a collapsed 13-story residential building in Shanghai, China. The whole building fell over here, if you can imagine that, because of a problem with the load-bearing structure. 2013, they had this uh, building here, had a load-bearing wall that had cracks in it in the basement. They had all the factories and all the restaurants and things get out, but the garment factory in the top floors decided not to heed the advice. And sure enough, the whole thing came crashing down, 2,500 people injured, over 1,000 people killed. So the point being, there's different ways it could happen. Now, why did God allow these people to die? We'll get to that in a moment. That's a bigger ethical question we're going to address today. But I want to show that it's plausible that God could do that. Because God is not limited by opposition. He's not limited by karma. He's not limited by our efforts. And he's not limited by what we think he can do. I think that's important because many of us, the problem we have in our circumstance right now is we think, God needs to change my circumstance. God says, that's not your main problem. Your main problem is you don't realize how big I am, that I'm bigger than your circumstance. So what God wants for you and I is us to expand our view of God, that our view of God, he would get bigger and bigger and bigger. Not that he's changed, but that we have taken and stripped all the ways we've limited him, stopped making him in our own image and realize he's more just than we could ever imagine. He's more merciful than we ever imagined. He's more powerful and more available than we ever could have dreamed of. 
that we will be in awe of who he is. When I was 15, I had a waterbed. And I remember the thing about a waterbed is you've got to empty the water out, and then you've got to fill it back up occasionally to put new chlorine and stuff in. So I had dangled it. My, my room was in the basement. I dangled the garden hose in and plugged it into the waterbed, siphoned it all out into the sump pump. Then I flipped the hose around, and I began to fill it up. And when you're filling up the waterbed, you know, it's about a foot uh, cav- uh, um, cavern that it sits in, or a little area, and then it fills up and it's level. But it takes about 20 minutes to fill it up. I turn the water on, I get about 20 minutes. It's sort of boring to watch a waterbed fill. So I decided to head outside and play some soccer. <laughs> so I'm outside playing some soccer, having a great time, me and my buddies, and we're just kicking it around for a while. Meanwhile, <laughs> red thing's filling up. Well, about the time it got to level, I was still playing soccer, doing a great, great job, I'm sure, and all of a sudden now it's an inch above the, the main line. And it's two inches, three inches. Now, I didn't see this stage. I'll tell you about the stage I saw in just a moment. But at some point, it got to be a foot higher than the bed, then two feet higher than the bed. And about the time it got a little higher than that is when I was kicking a goal and went, oh, the waterbed! And I go sprinting back into our room, and the pressure, when I saw it, it was three feet bubbled up over my bed level. The pressure from the waterbed was so strong, it had knocked the garden hose out. It's now emptying into my room, which is now an inch full of water. The hole that used to be plugged with the garden hose is now spewing water up, up in the air, right on all my stereo equipment. And I come walking in, oh my goodness, and I'm plugging this thing up and trying to you know, kink the hose I never imagined a waterbed could bubble up so high. I never imagined it could be so big. I never imagined it wouldn't have burst by that point. My vision of the waterbed far exceeded what I thought possible. And then I had to clean it all up, which took me hours. I think for many of us, we have a safe God. We fill Him up, we empty Him out, and God wants to strip all of the limitation we put upon him, that we would have a vision of his power, his might. He's bigger than we even thought possible. His justice will offend us at times. And his mercy will offend us at times. Because he's bigger than we are, because we didn't make him up. He's real. So God is not limited by opposition. God's not limited by these things. But now we want to look at what we are blind to our own limitations. Now we jump into the section about Ahab. And one of the first things we see is that we are limited by deception. Other people can deceive us. So Ben-Hadad has been pursued, but he has survived the battle. So as he has survived the battle, it says, Beth-Hadad fled and went into the city, into the inner chamber, and his servants said to him, Look now, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. What I love about this is that most of the kings of the pagan empires were known for being tyrannical, being vicious. But the followers of God had a reputation that was different. It stood out in their culture. They were known for their mercy, not giving people what they deserved, being gracious. So the servants say, let's put sackcloth around our our waist and ropes around our head, and let's go to the king of Israel, and perhaps he will spare our life. So they wore sackcloth around their waist, they put ropes around their head, and they came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And the reason they put a rope around their head, we've actually found in Egyptian hieroglyphics, 
that whenever the Egyptians would have slaves, they would put ropes around their head. A way of saying, I am your servant. I am enslaved to you. You are the more powerful one. So as they showed up to Ahab, who God had promised that he would give victory over Ben-Hadad, and specifically told him to kill Ben-Hadad, we'll see in a moment, they came to him and said, basically, you're more powerful than I. You are the great king. We are your servants. Whatever you want, we want to do. And so this little dress-up area somehow appeals to Ahab's pride in such a way that he chooses to not obey God because he's so flattered that he's now the big man on campus. Now that he is so important that the servants of Ben-Hadad will, would enslave themselves to him, he decides to not do what God said. And often as Christians, we can be very naive. We can be limited by, by being deceived by others. Because we want to be trustworthy, we're not very discerning or very wise. But part of being a Christian is realizing that everyone has human hearts that are wicked and that we need to be very discerning about who we trust. And he's not that way. He's limited by his own deception. Next part of the verse, he's limited by greed. So this is Ahab speaking. He says, is that Ben-Hadad still alive? Man, that guy's my brother. Your brother? Oh, man, me and Ben-Hadad, we go way back. It just seems like verses ago that he was trying to, I don't know, pillage my family and take my wives and my children. Oh, that's right, and his dad stole all those cities from us. Woo, those are good times. It's just crazy, right? But sometimes smart people make dumb decisions. You think, why are you doing that? Something about this ridiculous getup appealed Ahab's pride in such a way that he is not thinking right. But we're going to find he's also limited by greed, which is one of his motivators in just a moment. So the men are watching him talk about this mortal enemy that's like Hitler of ancient Assyria that's been killing people off pillaging villages. And he's saying, that's my brother. And the men were watching closely to see whether there was a sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at the word and said, yeah, that's who we're talking about. Your brother, Ben-Hadad. So he said, well, go bring him in. And Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he had him come up to the chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, hey, I got a deal for you, Ahab. Here's the deal. Hey, the cities which my father took from your father, I mean, you remember the good old days when my dad came and conquered all those cities from your dad and killed off many of your friends and family. Well, don't think too much about it. But anyway, I, I want to talk about those cities. I'm going to restore those to you if you let me live. But what you can do is you can set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, just like my dad did when he stole stuff from you in Samaria. And you're thinking, why in the world? The guy's even reminding him about all the horrific things he's done. Surely this is going to shake Ahab out of his blindness. But no, the human heart is so blind to its own limitations. And in this case, all he sees is dollar signs. <gasps> marketplaces. I can make money off this. Then Ahab said, man, that sounds great. I'm going to send you away with this treaty. And so he made a treaty with him and sent him away. You know, of all the years I've been in pastoral ministry or worked with, uh, with our teams, I think if you asked almost all of our pastors on staff, I think what you would hear is no one has ever come into our office and said, I'm really struggling with greed. Could you give me some pastoral advice? Some of the ways in which money can get people to do horrible things, we see it at funerals, 
We see it in, in people who overspend, people who oversave, people who can't give, people who get into conflict with a business partner because money becomes not a good thing, which it is, but an ultimate thing. And we can be limited by that. And Ahab just sees dollar signs, and the dollar signs triumph what God told him to do, which was to kill off evil Ben-Hadad. Where's Ben-Hadad? There he is. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. The next thing we're limited by is disobedience. Now, a certain man of the sons of the prophet, so the camera zooms from that scene to another scene, and now we have a prophet who's hanging out in the prophet school that Elijah began. And a prophet turns to the sons, one of the sons of prophets, turns to his neighbor and says, by the word of the Lord, strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. So he said to him, well, because you have not obeyed the Lord, surely as you depart from here, a lion will kill you. And as soon as he left, a lion found him and killed him. Man, I spent more time trying to figure this verse out this week than anything else. Right? Wow. And people say the Bible's boring. I mean, what? It's not boring. How can that be right? How can this be a good God? Well, a few things that'll help. I'm not going to be able to get you all the way there, but I'll try and help you. First of all, he's not just picking any old neighbor out. He was in a school that Elijah had started to educate prophets. And so one of his neighbors is a fellow prophet. So he's talking to prophets that have been trained. In those days, if you went into the pro- being a prophet, the standards for being a prophet were high. If you ever said a prophecy that was not true, you were stoned. Because God was so concerned that his word would be accurately represented. So you knew if you became a prophet, you were stepping into high accountability to do what God asked. Whether it was God telling you to marry a prostitute like Hosea, whether it was him telling you to lay on your side for three and a half years and then flip like I think it's Ezekiel. God asked his prophets to do some incredibly strange things. But they knew, I trust God no matter what. Second thing about the passage is because he's a prophet, he must have recognized this wasn't just his buddy's whim. He must have recognized this was actually coming directly from God. So this guy said, God is telling me, you know, this is God. Strike me in the face. And the guy refused to strike him. And it wasn't just, I don't feel like punching my buddy. Clearly, he seemed to know he was rebelling against God because I know better than God. He shouldn't want me to punch my neighbor. And he's not being um, stricken down by the lion for being nice. He's doing it specifically because he did not obey. There's something in his heart that says, I know this is God and I'm not going to obey God. Again, that doesn't get you all the way there, but it sort of helps. Now, we're going to see in a few moments why God wants this to happen. And sometimes God sees the whole picture. He's doing something in this situation that leads to another situation. And we can't see that, and so God has to do something crazy, and we don't do it because we know better than God what, that this can't be the right thing to do. We're going to see in a moment why God's going to do this. There's a dilemma in uh, Plato's discussions, and it's called the Euthyphro Dilemma. And it goes like this. Do the gods will things because they're good, or are they good because the gods will them? I'll say it again. Do the gods will things because they're good, or are they good because the gods will them? This is considered a philosophical dilemma because in both cases you have a problem with God. If gods will things because they're good, then there is a power that's greater than God that he has to appeal to. God is under the the, the realm of goodness, so he only can do what's good. So the thing that's more powerful than God is goodness. However, 
If things become good when God wills them, that's a problem too, because now might makes right. God can make murder. If he says it's okay to murder, then he can murder. And that makes God no longer good, but it makes God evil. So one of the Christian addresses to Plato in the uh, dilemma, in situations like this, is God is good, so everything he does is good. So it's not that goodness is above him, and he never is the author of evil. But because God inherently in who he is, is good, everything he does is good. Well, if that's true, you come to a passage like this and say, well, how can this be good, what God is doing? I'll give you one more example. I was watching the, the uh, History Channel. They were doing a story on a Private Henry Tandy in World War I. Private Tandy had in his sights a man who was running away from a battle. He was a British private, and they were pushing the Germans at a Mankoy, I believe. And as this guy was leaving, he was wounded. And his back to the private who had his sniper shot on him. And he decided he couldn't shoot a man who had been wounded, who was retreating. So he put the gun down. He won the Victoria Cross for that battle. And as he won that battle, um, they did a painting of him, some related to that weapon and this wounded guy who he let go free. Well, years later, as the story goes, one of uh, Churchill sent a man to try and negotiate peace with Hitler. And Hitler had made a copy of that painting and referred to the guy from England who came and said, there's the guy who almost shot me back in World War I. Now, even the History Channel says there's enough suspicion as to whether or not that all really happened, but there's enough facts to think it might have. So if God knew that Ben-Hadad was a Hitler that needed to be taken out in World War I because of the devastation he was going to cause in World War II, you'd say, ooh, all right, that's starting to help a little bit. The second thing, we have three factors in play here. One, these are not personal ethics. He's not encouraging on how we do ethics. He's talking about how a government does ethics. So Ahab was representing the government. They were in the midst of war. There's a difference between war ethics and personal ethics. And God says that you should not kill people without a justifiable cause. So, for example, uh, why is it okay to have self-defense? If you're trying to kill me off, the ethic of the value of my life allows me to defend myself from somebody who's trying to kill me because they are unjustly trying to kill me versus I'm trying to defend myself. I'll give you one more example. If somebody, a bad guy is trying to shoot me, and you're a sniper or a police officer, you could kill them ethically. That's not murder. It's a just cause because they are unjustly trying to kill me because I'm innocent. Well, then, with that said in stage, God says there's times of war. In this case, this is a guy who for generations has been killing, pillaging, raping, destroying people. And God says the mercy has run out and you, not as a person, but as a government in the ethics of war, are supposed to kill off this guy who has caused such damage and is going to do more. So again, I may not get you all the way there, but that sort of helps, uh, sort of help frame what's going on here. So let me keep going. We're going to touch on that a little bit more. So one of the things, the reason God wants uh, this guy to be punched in the face is because he's setting up a way to help Ahab get out of his blindness. And he specifically is now going to be limited by self-righteousness. And this is one of the hardest things to see in your own life. It's very hard to see your self-righteousness. It's very hard to see and be teachable, especially the higher and higher you get up in an organization. People don't want to speak the truth to you. It's hard to get access to the truth because people, you know, want to please you. Sometimes they need you. So God knows that the only, not the only way, but the way he chooses to allow Ahab to see his self-righteousness and to see that what he's doing is wrong, he's chosen money over being God, is through this very unique object lesson. 
So the same prophet who turned to his first buddy, who wouldn't punch him in the face, turns to a second buddy and says, he found another man and said, strike me, please. I love how polite he is when he asks people to punch him. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. So the prophet departed with this wound now and waited for the king by the road. He disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. And now he's got you know, this blood and all this from this wound that he got. As the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, King, your servant went out in the midst of the battle. And there, a man came over and, and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he's missing, your life will be his life, or else you will pay a talent of silver. And while I was, you know, busy doing this or that, busy here or there, I came back and he was gone. The guy said, I'd, I'd guard. What should I do? And the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself decided it. You promised you'd guard the guy. You didn't. Your life for his life. How easy it is to judge other people. To tell other people how it is. But you can't see when you're doing the same thing. That's why God has set this whole scenario up. Because after the king gives his discernment, that's clear what should happen here. The next verse, so he... The prophet hastened to take off his bandages away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he, the, the prophet, said to him, Ahab, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed for utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. Now, I'm not sure I would have chosen this object lesson for Ahab. But what God knew is that for Ahab, the only way to get him to see what he was doing wrong was to appeal to his pride through this object lesson that would address his self-righteousness. He could judge other people for the same thing he was doing. And God is so creative that he is willing to put us into weird circumstances in our life to help us see our blind spots. To help us see what's broken in our life. You think of Nathan. King David had been rebelling against God for years. Well, not years, months. He killed off, he slept with Uriah's wife. He killed Uriah. Lied in this battle plan that he did. It's been many, many months and he still hasn't repented. And Nathan comes to him and says, can I tell you a story? There once was a man, a rich man, had lots of sheep. He was having company over and he decided to go over to this poor man who had one sheep and take his little lamb. Bah. He killed that lamb. And he used that poor guy's lamb for dinner, for his feast. What should be done? Self-righteousness. That is wrong. I can't believe that. Not in my kingdom. That guy's life is going to go. And Nathan says, you are that man. See, many times, as Jesus says, it's, it's hard to see the plank in your own eye because we're so busy poke, poking out the, the specks in other people's eyes. And so God uses this analogy, this illustration, to help Ahab see his blind spot. And sometimes as we manage ourselves, as we manage people, we can do the same. I remember when I was probably 16, my dad had grounded me for something I did wrong. He grounded me for about a week. And about two days into the punishment, he upped the grounding from one week to two weeks. And I just thought that was so unfair, and there was no... Uh, cause to extending it. He just said, I've been thinking about it and I've decided to make it two weeks. 
So I was in the car with him one day, and my dad is not real self-aware. My mom, incredibly self-aware, very aware of her own feelings, her own thoughts, how she's perceived. Um, just an incredible woman. Uh, my dad's incredible too, but just in this area of self-awareness, he's not real high. So I thought, how am I going to explain this to my dad? So I'm driving in the car with him one day, and he goes, Chad, what's going on? You seem a little sad. I've been grounded from electronics for two weeks, but I wanted to say, what do you think I'm sad? Um, but I didn't say that. I said, we know, I was uh, playing uh, Monopoly yesterday with our next-door neighbor, Mary. And as we were playing Monopoly, I remember uh, she landed on free parking. And we had said, if you land on free parking, you get $500. She lands on free parking and says, hey, let's starting now make it 1000 And I thought that was so unfair that in the middle of the game, she would change the rules. To which my dad says, man, that's ridiculous. Why didn't you tell her that she can't change the, ga- the rules in the middle of the game? <laughs> I was gracious about it. I said, well, actually, Dad, that didn't really happen. That's just sort of how I feel about what happened with this grounding thing. Said, oh. Okay, you know what? I'll think about it. And, and, you know, he did. And he genuinely did think about it. But I knew for my dad, I had to find a way to, to, to discuss it that wasn't arrogant, that wasn't in your face, that wasn't belligerent, but would get him to at least think about it. I came home the other day and I was telling, we have a family uh, praise God time before dinner uh, several times a week. And I was talking about something I was very excited about. My son Javen is like, yeah, I think you mentioned that already. <laughs> I mean, all the air just, def- and I want to get mad. And I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. I say, hey, buddy, you know how sometimes you'll be really excited about a game. You'll be saving up for a game. And like for six months, you'll have talked about it. And we've heard you talk about it. But then the day comes, you run in the house with the game. And you say, Dad, I finally got the game. And I say, yeah, I think I heard you mention it. How would you feel? He's like, okay, I get it. I'm sorry. I should have been more excited about your thing. I said, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So whether it's gratefulness, whether it's a critical spirit, all of us have a tendency to not see our blind spots like with the Kleenex. So God wants to put people in our lives, systems in our lives to help us with that. So that we're not blind by other people's decisions. We're not limited by, what are some of the other ones we mentioned? Deception, our own greed, disobedience, or self-righteousness. So here's our takeaway for today. If you want to know who God is, that giant, explosive version of God, and if you want to be in access to the truth for yourself, You've got to relentlessly pursue an accurate view of yourself. And I mean relentlessly. The human heart is so deceptive. The human heart so doesn't want to come to access to the truth. You've got to relentlessly pursue an accurate view of yourself and God. Will you come to the scripture and say, God, I don't want to make you in my own image. Tell me who you are. I don't want to shape you by my own culture. God, tell me who you are. I'm with the real God, not the build-a-bear God that I made up. God, tell me. Show me yourself in the scripture today. And you also come to the Bible and you say, God, search me and know me. See if there be any wicked within me. Help me see my blind spots. Help me see what's broken in me. Or sometimes I just can't do that, even with just God and I. My heart's just too self-righteous to see it. I have to pursue it with other people. Could you help me out? And I would encourage you to do this. And I mentioned this last night, so people, I couldn't do it. To turn to your spouse and say, what are the things that I don't know about myself that everybody else knows? And you see, you're only going to do that. You're only going to do that if you know you're secure in God's grace. And you're only going to do that if you know the environment you're asking it, that the people have your best interests at heart. Whether it's in a marriage or a company. Hey, what are the things leadership-wise you feel like I don't know about myself that are holding me or holding us back? 
It is so healthy. It is so courageous. It is so bold. But it will not occur unless you know the God of the Bible who says, whatever we discover, you're loved. Whatever we discovered, it's already forgiven. Whatever you find out doesn't change how I feel about you. It's the security of grace that allows me to venture out into my own blindness and go, oh, that is true of me. When somebody confronts you, the only wise thing to do in light of this message, the only wise thing to do is to presume you're guilty before innocence. Right? Because anyone confronts me, my instinct is, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. Let me tell you the circumstance. It's your fault. It's his fault. It's this circumstance. You're being too sensitive. You're being too loud. You shouldn't have said that. Right? All my defense mechanisms are basically saying, I'm innocent. That can't be true of me. Instead, because I'm accepted, because I know my tendency to lie to myself, I'm going to start off saying that might be true. Can you give me some examples? Can you help me? Because I want to grow in that area. And that level of graciousness and humility that God wants to form in you can only occur when you understand God's grace. And you say, I want to know him and I want to know myself accurately more than I want to defend myself or pretend to be something I'm not. But if you do that, you'll have incredible fearlessness because the God you've gotten to know is so big you can stand up against anything. And the self-awareness you're going to develop is going to make you a better leader, a better follower, a better friend. And all your relationships are going to improve because you're more in touch with the truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your bizarre story of Ahab. Thank you that you're willing to go to great extent to help us get in touch with the truth about who you are and we are. And God, I thank you for your marvelous grace that we sang about today, that we studied today. God, thank you that you are a good God and a true God and that everything you do, even when we can't fully understand it, comes from your character, the character of a good, gracious, and loving. And God, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here today.